This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.07 a.m. on Tuesday, the 6th of November. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Keith Kam. In half an hour, we're going to discuss the thawing of relations between Australia and China and what this means for the economies of both countries. But as always, we're going to kickstart the morning with a recap on how global markets closed overnight. It was it was a, a green day for, for Wall Street last night. Uh, the Dow Jones was up 0.1%. The S&P 500 was up 0.2%. The Nasdaq was up 0.3%. It chalked up its seventh straight day of gains, which is the longest streak for 2023. Earlier in the day, Asian markets, uh, uh, the Japan's Nikkei was up 2.4%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng was up 1.7%. Shanghai's Composite was up 0.9%. Singapore's STI was up 1.2%. The FBM KLCI looks like it's doing pretty well. It's up 1%, closing the day at 1464 all right, for some thoughts on what's moving international markets, we have on the line with us Joe Quinlan, Chief Market Strategist at the U.S. Trust Bank of America Private Wealth Management. Joe, good morning. Thanks, as always, for joining us. So last week, you told us not to ignore a 10% market correction. You were right. The markets last week rallied. Best week of the year. But is this just a dead cat bounce? Uh, good question. I don't think it's a dead cat bounce, but last week's rally was just too much too soon. So, yeah, but that's kind of the nature of the coil, you know, that, that coiled spring when things look good, not much debt issuance from the Treasury, Jay Powell being on hold, talking dovishly, good earnings. This is what happens. You get these violent moves up. So I don't think it's the beginning of a long bull market, but it's very encouraging heading in seasonally into that Santa Claus rally type of sentiment. Uh, Joe, uh, U.S. non-farm payrolls increased by 150,000 in October, lower than the consensus forecast for a 170k rise. Are we finally starting to see a slowdown in the jobs market? Does this lend credence for the Fed to permanently pause going forward? I mean, it could. I mean, it lends to that story that the Fed is at or near the peak of the Fed funds rate. And I think it's maybe premature to talk about cuts from the Fed. Mm. But the job market is, remains healthy. Uh, you know, we're not seeing the gain buster numbers, 250,000, nor we expect that. So, but, you know, net-net, 150,000, that's pretty good with some revisions downwards. But uh, every company I talk to is still looking for labor. And the good news, too, wages have rolled over a bit here. I know the UAW and the unions got a big pay boost. But in general, wages are moderating, and that's very important. And plus, big number, productivity. Productivity in Q3 was through the roof. And that's good for earnings, good for growth. It's good for lower inflation. So, Joe, you said that it may be too early to uh, think about cuts, but the swaps are pointing to a June Fed cut. What do you think will you be looking out for to, to sort of get into, to start thinking about when the Fed is actually going to cut rates? What are the indicators that uh, you'll be watching? Well, the Fed will be looking at the personal consumption index. Uh, that's one of their favorites. Um, we're gonna, we need some help with the oil prices on energy. Rents are coming down. Uh, we're going to see continued job moderation. So, a lot of these pieces are falling into place, but they have to you know, continue to stay in place. And I think the key here is not so much the Fed. If we're, if we're at the peak of the Fed tightening cycle, that's fine. But I think we're going to stay here for a while. And so 5% plus on the Fed fund rate. That can create its own problems in terms of stress in commercial real estate, delinquencies on credit cards. So the Fed's walking a tightrope here still. The last thing they want to do is call mission accomplished because they're far from done you know, by this high wire act that they're doing right now. 
If we move over to Europe, preliminary figures show that Eurozone GDP contracted marginally in Q3, avoiding a recession that looked inevitable a year ago. What is your outlook on economic growth in Europe over the next six months, Joe? I think you continue to muddle along. I mean, you don't expect much from Europe, and that's exactly what you get, not much. Um, you know, it's very weak. I mean, but they're in the crosshairs of the war in Ukraine, the energy shock. Um, you're seeing some pickup in the service, travel, tourism sectors, agriculture. But, you know, there's a lot of competition from China with the EVs, the energy story. Um, they just, they're just not as competitive uh, overall relative to the U.S. So you see continued money flows out of Europe into the U.S., whether it's our treasuries, equity. So, you know, the outlook is okay uh, in, in Europe. They're muddling along. And, you know, I think that's kind of like the base case, honestly, for, for, for now and probably for the next year or so. And if we take a look at the energy sector, then, Joe, how do you think this is going to play out uh, during this winter season? We did see uh, energy, you know, prices really skyrocket last year. Uh, Are we going to see a similar trajectory this time around or have things managed to sort of moderate and and stabilize uh, throughout this winter season? I think more the latter. It's moderated, stabilized. Europe got really lucky lucky last year. And thank God uh, the weather, you know, the weather was cooperate. It wasn't that cold. And so they can build out the reserve levels. They still have high reserve levels. Um, they've done a fabulous job. I'll give your credit, you know, switching from Russian energy to the global markets, particularly the U.S. That, that, that was very difficult, and they did it very well. Um, so, but I think they're prepared uh, better this year for that transition in energy. But, um, you know, and then I don't, you know, honestly, when I hear $150 barrel of oil due to Middle East problems, you know, that might, that might touch it and then go down. It doesn't stay up there. So, mm. you know, we've been very lucky so far with the problems in the Middle East. Oil has been very well behaved. It's, it's remarkable. So they're, they're, that tells you there's a lot out there on the markets. So, you know, the supply is meeting the demand. And, and the Bank of England held uh, UK overnight rates at five and a quarter, quarter percent, but markets were surprised by the hawkish guidance by the central bank. What implications would this have for monetary policy direction? Well, that's, that's kind of like, you know, the, the Bank of England, they kind of followed follow the, uh, the, the script that maybe Jay Powell should have done in terms of um, looking at uh, not, not, not giving it away. So Jay Powell's a little more dovish. Bank of England, I mean, they, they're going to be hawkish, though, because their, their inflation rate is stickier, higher than ours. So they have to remain hawkish uh, in the face of staying steady with rates. And a lot of people think Jay Powell should have done the same thing. Like we, we, we effectively had a price. We had a, we had a cut in interest rates based on Powell's comments, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, the 10-year was at 5%. Now we're like 460. So that's like a 25 basis point cut based on his dovishness. So, but I think the hawkishness of the Bank of England is warranted because their inflation is still stickier and higher than the U.S. And, and you wanted to share something about the Bank of Japan as well? Yeah, the bank, we're watching that. We're getting, that's where we're getting a lot of client interest uh, in terms of yield, cold, yield control compression. Um, you know, how much can the Bank of Japan allow the tenure, the, their tenure, their fixed income yields to rise? Will they? Will, will Japan stop buying U.S. Treasuries and prefer to stay at home? That's a big issue for U.S. because you know Japan is the largest holder of U.S. Treasuries, foreign holders. Uh, China has rolled back dramatically, so. You know, we need buyers of our paper, and if all of a sudden Japan is more competitive in terms of yield, um, you can see a rotation, uh, less Japanese buying and more Japanese buying their own local paper as opposed to U.S.
All right, Joe. Thanks as always for the chat. That was Joe Quinlan, Chief Market Strategist at the U.S. Trust, Bank of America, Private Wealth Management, giving us his take on some of the trends that he sees moving markets in the days and weeks ahead. Commenting on the Fed uh, rate hikes there, he says that it may be a bit too early to really, uh, how to say, factor in uh, rate cuts. Uh, But there are several indicators he's watching uh, to see when they'll do that. Uh, And in the meantime, I think we can expect markets to be kind of going up and down as we head into the end of the year. It's not going to be a bull market uh, like all the way, but uh, a lot of different factors, I guess, coming into the next year. I I picked up on the fact that he said uh, there might be a a Santa Claus rally. And since we're so close to Christmas and and markets are already rallying, maybe it's uh, something to look forward to. A lot can happen between (laughs) now and Christmas when it comes to market activity. And we'll be keeping an eye on that for sure. But let's take a look at some of the international corporate news that has crossed our table this morning. We do have news coming from WeWork. Their shares were suspended on Monday uh, following reports that the company will file for bankruptcy. We did see these headlines last week. The Wall Street Journal and other media outlets reported that WeWork was planning to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Uh, But this was, of course, uh, citing unnamed sources at the time. So perhaps this is a sign that this is going to become official. Yeah, uh, shares of WeWork, which it could cost more than $400 two years ago, can be had for less than a dollar on Monday. I think it was last traded at 80 84-ish cents. Uh, in August, we, we work raised substantial doubts that it would it could continue to operate as it grappled with $2.9 billion in net long-term debt and more than $13 billion in long-term leases. Last month, the company also skipped hefty interest payments and this has kicked off a 30-day grace period before an event of default. I mean, it's a real fall from grace for a company that was once valued at what? Am I remembering 49 billion US dollars mm. of some sort? Uh, but yes, uh, this could be very well uh, the end of this chapter of WeWork uh, and really co-working spaces, right? What the future is for this uh, particular sector as the economy just changes again in this post-pandemic era. Yeah, I can't help thinking that WeWork and 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 uh, you know companies like Common Ground, which we used to see in, in, in KL all over the place at, at, at one time, were just uh, victims of COVID. Well, we... Let's switch over from, say, the property space to maybe uh, the uh, automotive space because we do have news from Tesla that Tesla plans to build a 25,000 euro car at its factory near Berlin as it aims for the mass uptake of its EVs. This would be like the affordable car, uh, affordable EV car in Europe. Uh, But the production commencement date has not been disclosed yet. So when they're going to start churning this out is anybody's guess at this point. It's interesting also. I mean, I just have to point out that uh, they don't really consider themselves automotive anymore. They are more tech companies. Sure. Uh, Yeah, it's just branding. Consumer (laughs) surveys have shown that the steep price tags of these electric cars together with high interest rates is one of the factors holding back uptake of the tech technology in Europe and the US. And in the first half of 20 2023, the average retail price of an EV in Europe was more than 65,000 euros. This compares with just over 31,000 euros in, in China. So a 25,000 euro car would be a game changer, really. This yeah. is really, I mean, it would really factor into people's decisions to buy a car, given that it's so affordable. Um, but yes, I think what they're looking at is whether they can make the production cheaper. And sources told Reuters that Tesla was closing in on an innovation that would allow it to die cast nearly all of the underbody of the EV in one piece. So that would really uh, bring down production costs, uh, speed it up as well. Um, So I guess we'll see whether that uh, kind of technology actually comes uh, into play sooner rather than later. Uh, But it is 7.18 in the morning. So let's take a quick break, but we will come back with more of the top stories in the newspapers and portals. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. 
You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.